You know, there's something about when you're watching the choir sing and you see several members that have to stop singing because they're tears that fill their eyes because of what they're singing. Just It's not just words on a page, but it's a prayer that they're making. And I'm so thankful for the way that our choir and orchestra lead us every week. So choir, thank you and orchestra for your service that you um, lead us in worshiping each and every Sunday. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, um, turn with me to the first book of the New Testament. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to use one of the pew Bibles that you'll find in front of you. It's important that we actually engage and look at Scripture ourselves, not just um, hear it proclaimed, but I want you to be able to see it um, in front of you there. This morning, we begin what we call Holy Week. And for those of us who are followers and disciples of Jesus, this is without a shadow of a doubt, the most holy week that we will celebrate as followers of Jesus as we reflect on the last week of Jesus' earthly life. So Holy Week begins today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, and then we will go all the way through Easter. And I would invite you to, to join me as we go through the events that took place um, over, over 2,000 years ago from today until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, the words will be on the screen. Would you stand with me as we read from Matthew chapter 21? I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, their, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and other others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The passage that we just read here in Matthew 21, it's a passage in which Jesus is fulfilling the prophets of what had been prophesied over 500 years before this takes place. In Matthew chapter 21, we see that Jesus is clearly, intentionally, without question, he is telling everyone who's there, he's telling us today that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that there's no question that he's not trying to say, well, am I trying to figure things out? He is saying deliberately, this is who I am. Make no mistake about it, this triumphal entry, what it is, is it's a coronation. It's the coronation of a king who's coming. And all of these events were orchestrated by God. This didn't take Jesus by surprise. In fact, he knew this is what would usher in the last week of his life. When you understand what Jesus is doing here on this triumphal entry as he's making his way into Jerusalem, then you understand that you can no longer say that Jesus was a good teacher 
that Jesus was a good example and not say that he is the Son of God. The triumphal entry clearly declares that he is the Son of God. A few weeks ago, I was able to, to witness the, a presidential motorcade. Have any of you ever seen that before? And you see the, the cars that go by, even if you've seen it on television. And, and it's not just four or five cars. I mean, you're talking about between 40 and 50 cars that are going through, and you have no idea which one is the, the president's limo. In fact, there are over 100 people that are involved in uh, this motorcade that takes place, even if the president is just going across town in Washington, D.C. That vehicle, that limousine that the president rides in, it weighs between 15,000 and 20,000 pounds. It's completely bulletproof. Not only that, it's sealed that if there were a chemical attack that he would be spared, that his life would be saved in this vehicle that he's in. This limousine, it's equipped with rocket-powered grenades, night vision optics, tear gas cannons, shotguns, bottles of oxygen, and I find this the most interesting, two pints of the president's blood type. The travel budget for the president of the United States, $350 million a year. Probably a couple dollars more than you spent this spring break, um, all right? If you take an average it out, that means that, that his budget is $2,614 to travel per minute. Now compare the presidential uh, motorcade coming in with the arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords coming in on a what? On a lowly donkey. Friends, in this passage that we see this, as I shared a minute ago, this coronation of a king. While, while in America we don't have coronations, we don't have kings and queens, most of us have seen a coronation before, whether it's on television or we've seen pictures. And when we hear about what took place and we read about the events of Jesus, something doesn't seem right, doesn't match up with what we've seen in England, does it? But we know that time and time again, if you're followers of Jesus, that he said that, that he is no ordinary king. He said that back in John chapter 18. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus told them clearly. He said that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, might not be delivered over to the Jews. And here he says it again. But my kingdom is not, what? From the world. This passage, it's critically important that we understand what this passage means because this is actually the last public event in Jesus' life before he's going to um, be publicly crucified. My fear, and, and, and this is just explaining because this is how I do it in my life, is for those of us that have been Christians for a long time, we tend to skim over Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday is so close to the next Sunday, which is what? Easter. Good. I was making sure you were awake. All right. And so we want to get to the climax. And we know the climax, of course, is Good Friday where the crucifixion and then we get to the resurrection. But I, I'm, I'm afraid that we miss the significance of what takes place today in which we celebrate the triumphal entry. Because when we understand or when we grasp the importance of what took place as Jesus made his arrival into the city, then it makes the events of, of Wednesday when he cleanses the temple and Thursday when he's having the Last Supper and Friday when he's crucified and Sunday of the resurrection, when you understand the, the purpose and the meaning of what takes place on the triumphal entry, it makes these other events come to life in greater fashion. So I want to pause just a minute, and I want to slow down as we enter into this Holy Week, and let's go back 
to this scene. So let's take this a couple verses at a time. So look with me in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 21. In verse 1, it says, Now when they, look at this next phrase, they drew near. So what's that next place? Where are they drawn near to? Jerusalem. That's important. We're going to come back to that. They came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent his two disciples. The first thing I want you to notice about this passage and about this Palm Sunday is that this is clearly the end of Jesus' journey. This is the end of his journey of 33 years. For 30 years, his life was in somewhat obscurity. We don't have a lot of details about his childhood, about his teenage years. And then we have a lot of detail about the last three-plus years of his life where he has his public ministry, his teaching, the miracles, the life of the disciples. And it all ends here. The goal of Jesus' life and his ministry, it's about to be reached as he enters into Jerusalem. So for several weeks prior to this passage here, Jesus has been traveling, he's been teaching, he's been moving closer and closer towards Jerusalem. And why he's been going closer to Jerusalem is because it was the time of Passover. And he knew that this was his appointed time by his father to die. Now during this journey, as he's made his way towards Jerusalem, he's picked up an entourage or a mob of people who have started to follow him and and they're, they're wanting to learn, they're leaning in and trying to see what is it that this Jesus is all about. But little do they know that even as they're making their way, not only to follow Jesus, but to make it to Jerusalem for the time of Passover, that Jesus himself is about to become the Passover lamb. Now, during this week of Passover, Jerusalem would have been absolutely covered in people. Now, Jerusalem proper, it's not a very large city. It's about 50 square miles. But during the time of Passover, some commentaries say there could be between 2.5 and 2.6 million people that would have been in the city. So a quick aside here, we're going to look at a parallel passage in John chapter 12. Matthew 21 is our main text, but if you want to put your finger in John chapter 12, I want you to look at John chapter 12 at at what occurred a day before Palm Sunday. So on Saturday, this is what occurred a, a few days before the Passover. John chapter 12, verse 1, it says six days before the Passover, listen to this next part, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where who? Who's the next name? Where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So why is it that Jesus is going to Bethany? Well, we know that Bethany is about two miles shy of of getting to Jerusalem, but we also know that this is where Lazarus was. And you remember the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead, and Jesus did what? Brought him back from, from the dead. Lazarus had two sisters, pop quiz. Who were his two sisters? Mary and Martha, that's right. And we know that Jesus, he dearly loved Lazarus, he dearly loved Mary and Martha. Now, I tend to think that in Jesus' humanity, we know that he's 100% God, but at the same time, he's 100% human. I happen to think that in his humanity, that he knew the events that were about to take place in his life. He knew how horrific this next week would be for him. So I happen to think that he wanted to go spend some time with his friends. That he wanted to spend a day with the companionship and the compassion that they would have with him. Here we are, imagine Jesus knew that he was six days from the crown of thorns. He knew that he was six days from the nails being in his wrist and in his feet. He knew he was six days from the cat of nine tails lashing his back 39 times. Six days away from bearing the sin of the world. 
And if you read verses 2 through 8 of John chapter 12, we see that this is a story where Mary ends up anointing Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume. And the disciples don't understand what's going on, and she begins to dry it with her hair. And, and what we know is that she was actually, even though I don't know if she understood, she was preparing him for his burial. But then if you move on to verse 9, it talks about how many Jews were coming to Bethany. Verse 9, it says this in John chapter 12. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only account of him, but also to see who? To see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now imagine if this had happened today. If there was a man who was dead that was back from the life, don't you think that all the news stations would be there? Of course, there's a gathering of people. They're there to see Jesus, but they're also there to see, hey, I heard and somebody told me this man was dead, and lots of people saw that he was dead, and now he's back to life. So they're following him towards Jerusalem, and as they, they stop and they want to see what this man Lazarus, tell me your story. Imagine the money he would make today writing a book, right? Tell me what was it like. So back to Matthew chapter 21. You see, it's clear that, that Jesus initiates all of this. None of the events of Holy Week take Jesus by surprise. It's not the Romans who killed Jesus. No, no, no. This was all part of God's plan. He willingly marches into what he knows will be the last week of his earthly life. You say, Blake, how do you know that? How do you know that he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt? Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18 says this. Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Don't miss this part. No one takes it from me. Not the Romans, not the Jews. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus initiated all these events. He is in complete control of what's taking place here. Move on to, to chapter two, um, 21, verse 2. It says, what did, the, what did he tell the disciples to do? says, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, not only a donkey, but there's another animal, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, why did Jesus choose that this would be the way that he would usher in, that he would initiate the last week of his life? By gathering a mob of people to follow him on his way to Jerusalem, to see him there, and this is when he's going to begin the last week of his life. Well, you see, the Pharisees knew, he knew, excuse me, he knew that the Pharisees, that they would be riled up when they see all these people following Jesus, and eventually they would be so mad at him that they would want to kill him. And that's exactly what takes place. But not only did Jesus know that the triumphal entry would usher in the end of his eternal life, he also understood clearly that this was his appointed time that God had given him that he was to die during the week of Passover. So here he is, setting up all the events for the rest of the week. And in verse 2 of Matthew 21 that we just read, Matthew chapter 21, verse 2, it's fulfilling a prophecy that we find in Zechariah chapter 9. It's a prophecy that Zechariah made that God had given him that there would be a great ruler who would to come. And this great ruler would be a great deliverer over Israel. He was going to come and bring peace. This is what the prophecy says in Zechariah 9.9. Remember, written 500 years before Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, here it is, your king is coming to you. Now, how is your king going to come to you? He says it next. Righteous and having salvation is he. There's something else, though. Don't miss the next part. Humble 
and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you were just to read that statement, it almost sounds like there's a contradictory statement there. It says that he's going to come righteous, but not only is he going to be righteous, he's also going to be what? He's going to be humble, and he's going to come in riding a lowly what? A lowly donkey. Now, not only does the prophecy say that he's going to come riding in a donkey, we know that uh, if you look in other Gospels, and Mark and Luke in particular, there's another significance to this donkey that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And the significance is this donkey had never been ridden before. You say, well, why does that matter? Well, the significance of that is that whenever there was an animal that was reserved for someone that had never been ridden, it's as if it's saying this animal, its purpose, it has been saved just for you to ride as you make whatever you're going to do. So Jesus says that all of this took place with a donkey, that he sends his disciples ahead to untie the donkey and the colt. For what reason? It says right here in, in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The prophet who? The prophet Zechariah. So by riding into his coronation on a donkey, Jesus is declaring exactly who he is. Not only is he saying who he is, because the Jews would have remembered Zechariah 9, he's explaining what his purpose is for coming. See, the people, what did they want? They wanted a military leader. They didn't want a leader to come in on a donkey, because if a leader came in on a donkey, it means you're coming in in peace. They wanted that leader to come in on that horse, because if you came in on a horse, you're coming as a military leader to bring war. And what they wanted was a king who was going to come and overthrow Rome and put uh, Israel back in their prominent place of leadership, and they would be the center of attention. They wanted that warrior king coming in on a horse, but instead, what do they find? They find Jesus riding on a donkey, weaponless, meek, and lowly, and it doesn't fit their narrative. Not only that, but who's Jesus' army? Some ragtag group of disciples? Do you think they intimidated anybody? I don't think so. Do you see how intentional Jesus is in making this arrival into Jerusalem? Friends, Jesus clearly did not come to make war with Rome. He had a much more important role. His role was to come and make peace with God and mankind. For the sake of time, let's move ahead to verse 8, and let's look at the people's response to the scene. How do they respond to this entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem? It says, most of the crowd, here it is, they spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And the crowds, there's that word, the crowds that went before him and that followed him, they were shouting. So these people, they're, they're taking their cloaks, they're taking their, their robes, and they're putting them on, on the passageway as if they're making a carpet for this donkey that Jesus is riding as he's making his way in. Now remember, we're talking about potentially hundreds of thousands of people that were here. There's a picture that we're going to show on, on the screen here that, that I like this picture because sometimes when we imagine this in our mind, it, it's almost as if Jesus is coming in, he's got all this room, and people. I have to believe that it was shoulder to shoulder of people. Because their crowds are gathering. They're wanting to see what's going on. And I just, in my mind, I'm picturing that it's almost even hard to get through. And so they're making this passageway. And people are, are saying, scoot back, scoot back. This is the king who's coming. And watch out as the donkey's making his way in. And the crowd, it says the crowd is growing. And as the crowd grows, there's an excitement that's growing. Because, friends, they knew who Jesus was. They knew exactly who he was. They had heard his stories. They had seen the miracles. They knew, the, especially the Jewish people, they knew the prophecies. 
they knew that this was the man who had raised Lazarus from the dead. The crowd was growing and they throw everything at his feet. And what is it that they cry as he comes in? Last part of verse 9, they cry, Hosanna to the son of David. By the way, what kind of king was David? He was a warrior king, right? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're crying for salvation. But they're not crying for the type of salvation that Jesus is offering. They're crying that they want salvation from Rome. They want this military leader. They want to be freed from the the physical presence there. They knew that Jesus was king. There was no question there. They just didn't understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. They wanted a physical kingdom. They wanted earthly deliverance. And so many times when we read the Bible, it's easy for us to look back and say, how could they have missed it? I think about Peter. Peter, how could you have missed it? But don't we do the same thing today? Don't we say, well, Jesus... I want you, but if you'll come in and you'll fit my narrative, you'll fit my little worldview, and you'll be exactly who I need you to be. We all want the Jesus that's going to come into the storms of our life and it's going to solve our problems at the time that we want him to, the way that we want him to, exactly how we think. And if Jesus, if he would just come and make my life peaceful and make my life free of problems, then I would follow him. But that's not who Jesus is. And look what happens just a few days after this. Jesus is going to go into the most holy place for the Jewish people. He's going to go into the temple. And what's he going to carry with him? He's going to have a whip and he's going to go into the temple. In a few days, he's going to clean up the mess that the Jews had made of the temple. What do we we gather from all this? What can we take away from this? Church family, we have to take Jesus for who he is. Not for who you and I want him to be. The word of God is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have no right to try to form him into our image or make him fit our cultural or our personal worldview. We must take Jesus for who he says he is. The mob of people, they're crying out and they wanted physical deliverance. But what they needed was so much more than just an earthly physical deliverance. What they needed was deliverance from their sin. So it's as if Jesus is saying, I know that what you want is to be free from Rome, but I've come to give you something even greater, and that's to solve the problem that you have with God. That is why I have come. From the very beginning, all through Jesus' life, but even from the beginning of Jesus' coronation here on Palm Sunday, we see that there was no usual, there was nothing ordinary about Jesus. We'll soon see that in just a few days, Some of these same people that are clamoring to Jesus and hailing him as the Son of God, what are they going to cry for in just a few days? They're going to cry for his blood. They're going to cry for him to be killed because why? Because he did not meet their standards. He didn't come in the way in which they wanted. On Sunday, they're shouting for him. They're saying how much they love him. But why are they saying how much they love him? Because of what they want from Jesus. Give us healing. Give us deliverance. Make us prominent back again on the world stage. But in just a few days, we're going to see that when he begins to confront the Jewish people over their sin, what do they do? They curse him and they kill him. That's not the Jesus they want. That's not the king that they were clamoring for. Let's look at the last two verses here in in chapter 21. 
says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is fascinating to me. Jesus knows how to get a, a crowd stirred up, doesn't he? He's orchestrating this event. I have to believe that he knew this was going to happen. It doesn't just say that the crowd was stirred up, but it says who? The what? The entire what? The whole city was stirred. What's going on here? We're so confused. Not only were they stirred up, but if you look in John's gospel, the disciples themselves, they were confused. They were perplexed. They didn't understand the whole picture here. John chapter 12, verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't understand the full picture. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, it wasn't until God takes Jesus back into heaven and God sends the Holy Spirit that the disciples, their eyes are open and they begin to see there's a much bigger picture in front of them. So you can imagine that if the disciples were confused, what well, makes sense that the people would be confused too. The, the city would be confused. And the, the, some of the crowd was hailing Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Many of them really didn't know exactly who Jesus was. Now again, let, let, me, let me give you some context here. Make sure you understand. The evidence was in. There was no doubt that Jesus had fulfilled the prophecy, that Jesus had performed the miracles, that he was the Son of God. It wasn't because that they didn't have enough evidence that he truly was the son of David that they eventually reject him and put him on the cross. The reason they eventually reject him was because they were not interested in his spiritual kingdom that he was bringing. And again, not much has changed today. Most of us know people who are so intellectual, so intelligent, that if you were to give them a copy of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, and say, here are the prophets, are the prophecies of 700 years from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 53, we're going to look at on Good Friday. Of what the Messiah would look like, of the things he would do. And here is the evidence of what he did. Most intellectual people would say, I believe and I can clearly see how those two fit together. But still, people want a kingdom on their own. They want a kingdom that's going to be filled with happiness. Filled with wealth and going to be filled with immediate gratification. You know, I haven't met many people who at some level don't have some admiration for Jesus, even if they're not Christians. Most people, especially in America, they'll always say that, well, I admire Jesus. Don't care much for Christians. Christianity, not, not a big fan of. The church has done all these things wrong, not our church, the capital C church. But Jesus, I, I like Jesus. He was a good man. And they liked Jesus because of things he did. He loved the poor. He befriended the outcast. He had compassion on those that the rest of the world looked down upon. He had genuine humility. And they say, yeah, we like Jesus, but it's, it's the church. It's Christianity we have a problem with. Because Christianity says that, that out of all the religions of the world, you are claiming that you are the only way to enter heaven is to believe what you believe. And they'll say, isn't that the height of all arrogance to believe that out of every other religion, that only if you believe what you say you should believe, that's the only way to heaven? Well, friends, you can't love Jesus for all those things I just mentioned, for befriending the poor and having genuine humility. You can't love him and ignore some of the claims that he made. Listen to just three claims that Jesus made while he was here on earth. John chapter 3, verse 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the good news. We like that part. But don't listen to what he said next. 
He says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But what? He goes even stronger. The wrath of God remains on him. We love John 3, 16. We're going to talk about that verse next Sunday. That one, the Bible summed up in one verse. We love the fact that God loved us, that he sent Jesus. But don't miss verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Praise God. But don't miss the next part. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Finally, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Praise God that we find life through Jesus. But don't listen, don't miss what he says next. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, you can't accept or appreciate Jesus' humility without accepting his claim to be the one and only way to the Father. Again, we accept Jesus for who he is, not what we want him to be. And yet still today, so many people are unwilling to face the reality of their sinfulness. They're unwilling to face the fact that their sin separates them from a holy God. And they willingly choose to reject the gift of salvation that he has offered to us. But then there's those other people. They're those other people that I believe were a part of that crowd. They were just swept up in the emotion. They were swept up in the intrigue. I'm not sure what's going on, and I believe they could have gone either way. And friends, it's those people that you know, those people that I know, that we have the most incredible opportunity next week to invite them to church and to share with them what it truly means to have eternal life. Next Sunday, I'm going to answer one very simple question. The most important question that each and every one of us need an answer to that every person in this world needs to know, and that is, how can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'll go to heaven when I die? Pretty simple, but you know what? Billy Graham was pretty simple, too. How can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt? Not, not, I hope, well, I think I will, well, I'm trying my, no. How can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'll go to heaven when I die? Jesus gives us the answer. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. So much more than just a cute children's story of Jesus coming into town riding a donkey. No, it's a declaration of exactly who Jesus is. The Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah that they had been longing for. The orchestration of what would be the last week of Jesus' earthly life. The beginning of not only a, a life-altering week, but the beginning of an eternity-altering week. One that I look forward to journeying alongside with you this week as we reflect upon all that took place. I want to encourage you to be here Friday night. Next Sunday is going to be incredible with, with Easter and celebration of the resurrection. But I think there's something more special when we come together and we reflect upon the sacrifice that Jesus gave to us. And so I would encourage you to be here as we reflect on the death of Christ. And it makes the resurrection that much sweeter. Palm Sunday. We know exactly who he is. And exactly his purpose for coming. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. The gift that we could never earn, that we certainly don't deserve, but you freely gave to us. That Jesus, 
became sin. One who knew no sin became sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for your son's willing obedience to follow you as you led him not only into Jerusalem, but ultimately to the cross so that we might be forgiven, that we might be free, we might be whole because we're found in you. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here today that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today they would call upon the Lord, not for physical deliverance, but for spiritual deliverance, to say that today we lay our sin before you and we accept the gift of forgiveness that you freely give. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.